is money a drug? I'm sure it could be for some people, but it becomes a drug when people get high winning and losing. So the gambling is where it becomes a drug. And of course, that can also bear out in finance, right? People mm-hmm. can get high doing that. It's interesting. Gambling has several different sort of varieties. One is people that get high winning, which is actually a small minority. There's a group that gets high losing, and there's a group that gets high debting. Debting. Yeah. So there's debt, debt holiday. How do you get high losing? I have it, I think I have loss aversion. I do too. Losing is very painful to me. I have more than loss aversion. I have catastrophizing. So I cannot <laughs> contemplate losing. But uh the ones that like losing are people that come from a certain traumatic background and don't feel alive unless, and they'll tell me this, unless my back is against the wall. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. This is not a podcast about how to make a million bucks, how to beat the stock market, or how to save money by switching cable providers. It's about how we think about and live with money as a society and as individuals. It's about the choices we make that lead us toward or away from happiness. Welcome to Crazy Money. I'm joined today by Dr. Drew Pinsky, board-certified physician, multi-platform broadcaster and addiction specialist. Is shopping a drug or does does shopping release the same kind of um, emotions or brain chemicals that that, uh, drugs do? Very much the same brain chemicals. Obviously not in extra-physiological ways because you're not taking an extra-physiological pharmacological agent, Mm -hmm. but you can get very high levels of these things charging into your brain. And often the ones I've seen that are really compulsive had some sort of conditioned experience where they, you know, never met their dad, and he, or this I've I heard this one story once specifically. My mom left when I was two. She came back when I was ten, and we went to the Burlington coat shop and we bought coats. And now this woman is a compulsive coat shopper. God, <laughs> yeah. And so, so that experience was so glorious to her that that's how she manages her affects ever after. Last time we were together, you told me to read the uh, Ron Chernow biography of Ulysses S. Grant. Yeah, did you? I did. It's long. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> but you you were engaged though, right? It's fascinating. I mean, yeah. uh, it was eight hundred pages. Living living in the South, it was really interesting to read about Reconstruction and just how incredibly brutal it is, and it's actually somewhat relevant given um, all the voter suppression stuff that's going on. It, it was like reading those parts and what Grant was contending with in the in the, st- the states in the South, yeah. life-changing for me because I, I didn't realize. It, it's a piece of American history we have covered up. For sure. We don't think about, we don't talk about, we don't even know it existed. Ugh, it was it was that bad. And, and you see just, bits and pieces of it every day the further you drive out of Atlanta. I, I understand, but you think, I think, I thought I was seeing Jim Crow. I thought I was seeing slavery. Mm-hmm. But what I'm seeing was Reconstruction and the horrors that were perpetrated. Yeah. And I think a lot of it got forgotten because most of the people that were subjected to it were, are dead. And yes. it was, and it was uh, Stephen Douglas, who's uh, Stephen Douglas, the, the black uh, orator. Am I getting his name right? Uh, anyway, he's he had said that they, you know, he Frederick was, Douglass. Frederick Douglass. There you go. Stephen Douglas was the politician. Frederick Douglass, Douglass said that he was regretful of the Civil War because slave they'd given up the lash for the shotgun, <laughs> and it was yeah, it was just horror, horror on horror. So anyway, yeah. did it um, did it change your view of American history at all? I think it. Uh, 
I think it really reminded me of, well, there's several things I take away from the book. First of all, what a modest man Grant was. Oh my God, yes. For, and and a and failure in everything. Everything. Except being a general and, and a president. Yeah. At which he was extraordinary. Yeah. And you think, God, how many people in this world are overlooked just because they haven't found that thing that they do well? Well, and 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 they're not just overlooked, but 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 history and ability have to come together, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He could have been a great general, and this he, if people that don't know, he was a I think a sergeant in the Mexican American War, and then was a, something like that performed at a very high level, and then failed ever after until he became until the Civil War broke out. Had the Civil War not broken out, he would have been just a right. Couldn't a, make a penny, living off his in laws, yeah. uh, failure in business, Fail, failure as a, as a tanner, as a, as a leather tanner, That's failure right. as a farmer, That's failure as everything. Right. Yeah. Wow. So. Um, these uh, that's uh it's mike carano producer extraordinaire but but i, I want to talk about money specifically though okay. that was your question yes so we're really talking about the behaviors around money not money yes. itself money is a symbol mm-hmm. right it's not really anything else it's just a made-up concept that we all agree upon mm-hmm. and it's it's a symbol and it has lots of meaning lots of different kinds of meaning to lots of different kind of people and, and so people use it as a means to identify themselves, as a means to keep score. How does that manifest? A, a symbol of worth, a symbol mm-hmm. of uh, accomplishment, a symbol of status within the tribe. Status, yeah. Uh, and, and it's, I mean, ultimately it's nothing, right? It's mm-hmm. just something we made up that we agree is something. <laughs> Wait, right? what? Money is nothing? Right, right? I mean, it means a lot. But <laughs> Why have I been working so hard? <laughs> but- for all but, these years, but you know what I mean. We it's 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 the the, the dollar bill isn't actually there's nothing there. Nothing it's, a, there. it's a social contract, right? It's a, it's a, we agree is meaningful, and we all mm-hmm. agree upon it. And as such, we use it to uh, you know accumulate certain you know psychologically important. Um, we we use it for psychological reasons, and so you you live in sort of uh, the the intersection of. Of of so many different um, stimuli yeah. in Los Angeles yeah. in the entertainment industry, very visible person and in in the world of addictive behaviors. Yeah, and so how do you see those things? How do, how do you see money exacerbating addiction or or vice versa? You know, money is is a problem for drug addicts because they don't have it and they need to get <laughs> it to get their drugs. Right, but I don't think there's any other i don't i don't find myself talking to drug addicts about money very often it's just a means to an end yeah it's for a means them. to an end for them yeah they, they're in, in survival mode all the time but do you now th- later it starts to have funny meaning because they've never had to even deal with money and so the idea of counting money and saving money and having a bank account these are all novel ideas and so when they're in the recovery in they recovery. have to v- learn very basic life skills yeah. for adults 100 and sort of just saving for this for next month and right understanding right. what a you know what a healthcare is and what a salary is and what a savings account is, and, and that's the only time I find myself talking to them about money mm-hmm. later. Just functional ways to live, to to live, to be well and mm-hmm. live just a normal, a normal of, life, right? Just normal part of funct- right. daily living function. And, and do you think that living in living in Los Angeles, where there's so much, there seems to be a lot of putting on and trying to pretend you're somebody and. You know the the nine eleven parked outside of the uh, one bedroom studio apartment. Um, do you see people struggling with that? 
Well, this now you're getting into sort of personality stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And it's funny, just when you said that, I thought to myself, oh yeah, of course they struggle with that because addicts are grandiose and self-preoccupied and can be highly narcissistic before they let go of all that. And sometimes it takes a, a few big falls before they're willing to let that go. But it does remind me a bit of how millennials are these days. In, uh, in, in what ways? And not in terms of them needing status or symbols of status, but that they they want to sort of be given their ultimate muse. Like this is you know immediately. I want to be whatever it is. They just want it immediately. And uh, addicts are that way too. So, so do do you think millennial? When you say they want their muse, meaning they want to find something that. They, they want to do their thing without worrying about money, like they're there's above some of that, money? There's or? some of that, that that somehow capitalism and money is some sort of a disdainful mm-hmm. anachronism. Mm-hmm. But it's more than that. It's it's that, I, I hear them all the time, like, I haven't figured out what I ultimately want to do yet. Right. And until I find that ultimate thing, right. I'm not even going to work. <laughs> what? What? Well, the, the idea of starting somewhere and building up and finding and things leading and past. No, I see what you're saying. None of that. And how do you think that? Is, and addicts is, do is that, that stuff too. Addicts do that kind of thinking. Is that a result is, uh, of of how they were raised? Or we don't know. I I've, I talk to parents all the time. We, mm-hmm. we always think, like, what did we? How do we get? Where did this come from? It's got to have something to do with college professors because it didn't come from their families of origin. <laughs> it's so, the co- it's the college professor. So, somehow it came from their their university environments. I'm convinced of it. Because there's nothing about the families of origin that suggests anything like that would be something appealing to these kids. That's you know we we we've spoken to um, some very successful millennials and one of them said uh, I I never wanted to work for the man and and I thought that's of, the kind of thing they say yeah but they don't know what that means right it's like working for the man means starting low working for anybody is what they mean right they don't want to be a, they don't want to be accountable to anyone. That's crazy. Well, it, it, it seems like it's almost a, re, it, it's a replay of hippie culture because I remember bit. growing up in the 80s and watching Family Ties and thinking Alex Keaton was the coolest kid because he was the ultimate organizational man. And I was like, I want to work for a big, I want to work for IBM or Coca-Cola. I want to be a senior vice president. That's what success looks like. Yeah. I want to wear a white shirt and a red tie. I want to drive Buick. Buick Sabre. Well, you're you must be the reason millennials are so fucked up because they, because they've gone like, the this opposite. guy's a dork. They've gone the he's a loser. That you're the guys they're reacting to. Now I understand it. It's the generation just ahead of them they're pissed off at. It could be. Did you get into medicine for the money? What was your as you were, um, as you were coming up? What were you thinking about? You wanted to be as a professional. It, it was more way more complicated than that. I mean, my uncle was a doctor. My dad was a doctor. Mm-hmm. I grew up, you know, being I want to be like you, Daddy, mm-hmm. and then hit college, and I was like, "Well, what the fuck am I doing? I don't want to do this. Why? Why did I? Why did I? I never made this decision to do it." You were studying biology was, or pre med? Yeah, my first year, and and I did well, but it killed me to do it. I had to just, it, I had to kill myself, and I just abandoned it. I abandoned it completely, and um, I did all kinds of goofy things, but I was very unhappy. I, I mean, I thought. I was happier than I was the semester before, but then I slowly became depressed and started having panic attacks. And then I started thinking, maybe I should go back to those science. Maybe science is where I belong. And I immediately started feeling better. So I thought, oh, well, maybe I had to really look at that. So you said you did some goofy things. Can you show me like the theater goofy and music? Oh, and just running and left college. <laughs> theater is goofy. But I left college. I you know came back to Los Angeles and. I just didn't. I was just like a drift, and, and that's part of what was uncomfortable for me. I that's needed, so. So that's after. Was this in the middle of college or first after year? College? First semester, I did pre med. Next semester, I did. 
everything but, right. uh, and then left college for a while. So you didn't. So you thought you wanted to be a doctor, then you thought you, this isn't for me. You want. Then to I find thought yourself. I was going to be an opera singer for five minutes. That was part of that whole process. Uh huh. And uh, but I wasn't thinking about money the whole time. I wasn't. Um, but when I decided to go back, uh, I did think eh, maybe it'd be a more secure way to make a living. I it's guess. a safe way to make a living. Yeah, being a doctor. Yeah. What was what was the uh, level of financial stress like in your house as a child? We didn't have any uh, lack. There wasn't a lack, and we lived in a nice environment. And I went to a private school, mm-hmm. and I, you know this kind of stuff. But I had a father who was profoundly affected by the depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, only after his death did I come to understand that his family of origin had like a and their family t- was together in a restaurant, and they lost everything. Oh wow! And he, they literally almost were out in the streets, almost homeless. Certainly had food distress. My grandfather ended up opening a grocery store in part of Chicago and became a grocer, and that's sort of how they made their living. Uh, but my father never forget that and was pounding on me from the age of, I'd say, under the age of two. Because we moved when I was two, and I remember him with this BS, but it really picked up around the age of two, which is if I needed like clothing or something. First mm-hmm. of all, they they would they sort of spoiled me, but whenever I got things, there was guilt, guilt, guilt. <laughs> right, like, right. Like, oh, kid that has everything. <laughs> what are we gonna do with you? You know, they're like teasing me and guilting me. Right. And then when I needed clothing, my dad had this thing he would tell me, and he told me this story a thousand times, and every time I believed him, he said, "Oh, you need shoes? Well." <laughs> When I was a kid, walked through the snow in Chicago with holes in my shoes. They tell, they tell me a story right. about Chicago and the distress, and we lost everything. And then you can buy shoes, but tomorrow I'll be in the poorhouse. It's okay. It's all right. I'll be in the poorhouse. <laughs> you, you can wave to me from the poorhouse. You can see me. I'll stand in the window. Right. And he would tell me these elaborate story about this place that I had constructed in my head. Mm-hmm. And this went on for years. Where Until you were how old? 12. Wow. Uh, where it was just like I was just in a panic that tomorrow was the end of the world yeah, and that I was going to cause some sort of financial destruction of the family. Your selfish need for shoes was going to pull down for the anything. My, my any need for anything was yeah. going to result in disaster and, the, and I was specifically the, the cause of it. I, it sounds silly. He tried it on my kids. They laughed in his face. Right. And, 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 but I was mortified by it and I still have this weird, catastrophic, panicky, feeling because of it i can't can't shake it and how does that how does that manifest today as as uh you know a, a chronic workaholic mm-hmm. and, and a save you know a pecuniary saver you know mm-hmm. like you can't can't let go of anything and have to save 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 and um never feeling like i'm accomplished anything always feel like i'm right in trouble you know hey dad look at my imdb yeah mm-hmm <laughs> that no doesn't way. do anything. No. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> well, because there was another, many, many, obviously a lot of other shit came with that psychology, sure. which was, I never, never, whatever I did, it wasn't enough. It was mm-hmm. never acknowledged. It was never anything. Mm-hmm. Never, you know, I was just a, you know, I was a shithead and that was that. When you graduated from college, you went to, you, you went to med school at USC. Yeah. And then, so did you feel like your dad was on your side? Like he was supportive of what you were doing when you were going into medicine? Yeah. At that point, all was good. And they, mm-hmm. and I, and I, they paid for my education, which is something I, it's a big deal. Oh, it's a big deal. And, and I, so I ended medical school without any debt. And I was so appreciative of that, that that became one of my sort of goals in life 
to feel like one one of the ways I know I'm okay is if I can pay for my kids college and graduate school. And I just just I'm so grateful for that. Right. He put Doctor Drew. We are at his home it. in Pasadena, California, and he just pulled six cents. And I'm saving it out of and a lipstick. There's all kinds of weird I stuff in my, in my couch. Um, here. That's not your. That's not your shade, Doctor Drew. My wife. So so so, how did your the way you grew up and your father sort of guilting you about buying you things? How did that affect? And by the way, and as a result. Never, bought, I never had clothing and things. I had like holes in my. I really looked like a hobo. because you didn't want to ask for anything. No, I and I, I and but he didn't want to buy me anything either. <laughs> he, he literally, literally did not want. So he wasn't putting on an act. For no, you. Oh, he was. This, this was if he could create a state of depravity, it would be the best. That would be that'd be gratifying to him. That's, that's because he was really scared, or because he wanted to teach you a lesson. Because his psychology was the trauma of the depression, and so. He was living in his panic and fear and trauma of that, and he transmitted that to me. So how do okay? So what are different ways a parent could have gone with that? Because some parents might have said, "Hey, I don't want my kids to have to feel the fear that I felt when I was a kid." Yeah, might have gone the other way, right? And by overindulged, which I'm glad he didn't do. That mm-hmm. would not have been good. But he also might have gone, "Oh, this is goofiness. This is crazy. I'm, you know, I'm. This is my own reaction to these traumatic things, and mm-hmm. maybe try to contextualize it for me, and." maybe make more of a narrative that I could understand rather than just this panic. Well, so that's kind of one of the reasons I want to do this podcast was because I was, I was raised in my, we, my, we, we had everything we needed. Uh, but as I was joking with Mike about earlier, we, you know, I grew up in a house with eight people and three toilets, you know, which is uh, 0.327 mm-hmm. toilets per person. Right. And, mm-hmm. and so I wanted, I always wanted a bigger house. I always wanted more stuff. I didn't want to stress about money. And I thought if I made more money, I wouldn't stress. Well, that's, <laughs> no, I know, I know, but that's, but that's my fantasy too, that there's some, there's some place where I, so, so my, my whole, my whole sort of mission became freedom. Right. I needed freedom. Defined how? Freedom from this, freedom from my parents. It, it, it was early, you know, in my adolescence was freedom from them. Mm-hmm. That's what it felt like. Mm-hmm. I was tunneling out. Like I had to tunnel to freedom. Right. And then once I was out tunneled on the other side, it felt like I needed some sort of financial freedom. Mm-hmm. I cannot, I don't know what that means. Right. I don't know what that means, but I feel like as I have improved my financial situation, when people say, there's all this happiness literature about how well if you make a certain amount of a certain threshold and then you don't feel happier that is just false that is categorically false which part of it i have felt better and more relief each stage as i've got you know sort of accumulated more wealth really uh, significantly like significantly and at times i felt okay and then of course it fades a little bit or markets go down or whatever you know, you start to feel like I'm not really, I'm not really good. I'm not okay. And is that based on sort of a, um, you have a multiple of your burn rate in the bank, or because you've you've crossed off? Uh, I can't even. I don't even know what it is. It just feels. I just know that my feeling shifts. It's not. It's not an. There's not a quantitative formula attached to it. When your kids graduated from college, did you feel like not just proud as a parent, but you felt like check, I'm a provider. I got check, that check, but I got to get the grad school thing together. Right. Yeah. So do your kids want to go to grad school? Yeah. Okay, and and I'm struggling. To that do is that. that is a non-trivial expense. Oh my God, I got one in law school, I got one at Columbia, I got another one to go to business school, and right, you know, and I want to give them that. Sure, period. So what do you? 
What do and you that want? does not feel free. <laughs> it does not feel it isn't free. It it's not but no, free. I'm not free from. Burden. Oh, oh, oh! You're not. I'm free. not. You're free. not liberated. You're liberated. Thank do you. Do you think you'll be? Do you think you'll feel liberated know. when they graduate from their cr- graduate school? Programs? I wonder. That's funny. That crazy. Is that? Do you have that same feeling? Uh, or anything I, like that? I feel. I am. I am. Um, I feel good about where I am, but I also feel like I have a lot of life ahead of me, mm. and there's a lot of unknowns. And even though I've, I've been very fortunate to save some money from Facebook, I kind of am also feeling like there's always pressure to spend more. To spend more. To, well, there's always there's always things you don't have that yeah. look nice. That, that wouldn't they be nice to have? Yeah. Wouldn't yeah, it be yeah. nice to take this vacation? Wouldn't it be nice to fly first class or private once in a while? There's no limit to the to the desires uh, to consume, and so it's it's just really important for my wife and. I to stay on the same page or as much as possible. Yeah, of course. That's another whole layer to this too. It's the, crazy. The partnership to this. Right. Yeah. What did you want to teach your kids about money? What values about money did you want to instill I, in your I, kids? I, the main thing was I wanted them to understand that how capitalism works, that if you have capital, capital generates capital. Mm-hmm. And very few people are raised with that, that understanding. And I wanted to give them a feel for that, like to watch something you know, I, I I made them read the Little Blue Book. If you've read that investing book, the Little Blue Book mm-hmm. um, uh, on investing, and just just get a sense of how how our systems work and really what's going on. Not to think just in terms of wages and packages, you know, of, of whatever you know, healthcare packages, or whatever. Not, I, I not just them, income and benefits. Income but, and benefits, exactly. I want right, them to but, think in terms of how things accumulate and how, they, mm-hmm. how you build things. I say Compound build things. Growth. How to build things would really be the thing right. I would. I was sort of interested in them understanding because I'm, I'm amazed how nobody thinks about that anymore. That's amazing to me. Well, it's amazing to me that not, not only do people not understand it, they sort of vilify it. Absolutely. And one of my kids still, he's kind of that way. Yeah. Like like she announced last night, I took her to the airport, that, that capitalism is done, it's time for socialism. And, <laughs> and, and she has no attachment to any American values. And I, and I said, how many billions of people died so you could even say that? I mean, mm-hmm. just think about that. Right. That's Anyway, I was talking to a younger comic, um, and they're almost all younger. <clears throat> but um, she said, "You know, I know if I make more money, somebody else makes less money." And I was like, "Whoa, wait, whoa, what? Where did that come exactly. from?" Exactly. It's not you. This is not a zero sum game. Oh my god, that's weird. And I said, and I was like, you know, there's a thousand businesses around here that would love to have you come work for them and work hard. She's like, well, I don't want to work hard. Oh, well, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, well. that's another part. Is it hard work that? That I want them to understand that a lot of, there's a lot of people with a lot of ability, but one thing you can always do is work harder than anybody else. Right, and, right. and that's another thing I wanted them to see and know. I I kind of did that too much, and I think that, that I, you overworked. Yeah, yeah. I I still am workaholic, but I don't overwork so much. I mm-hmm. will at times. I kind of I still get I look at kind of high overworking. I like it. What What are you getting from work right now? I mean, what What is the most fun thing you do besides podcasts from random? Probably podcasts are the most fun thing. I mean. I, I like I do a lot of other people's shows and stuff, mm-hmm. and I, I just like climbing into other people's things and see what I can make of it. And right. my, my whole thing has been an exploration, right? I mean, what, I'm a physician trying to use entertainment vehicles to make a difference. That's mm-hmm. all I do, right? And I never know what that means or what it's going to look like or what people are going to propose to me, and they'll propose things to me that don't don't seem even appropriate sometimes. And I'll I'll try it, see if I can make something, right. something good out of that, right? And usually I can. Kind of not non uh, traditional shows like Celebrity Rehab would well, that was like a new thing, right? Yeah, that was like well they came to me and I was like, Well, that's an interesting idea. Impossible. 
impossible. Mm-hmm. But and they kept coming. I kept saying, "All right, well, let's try to." I tried problem solving problems, and we started solving all the problems one mm-hmm. after another. All the way to the day before we started filming, we had major problems, and um, and they all got solved. And I thought, "All right, let's try it." What do you? What issues do you care about right now that you want to tell people about? Um, I, I'm. I'm sort of overwhelmed by the homelessness thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can't believe we let people languish on the streets and we can. how can the government officials go to bed at night with that happening? Uh, we're having major infectious disease outbreaks that have a high probability of getting breaking out into the general community that will be profoundly destructive mm-hmm. and they're not doing anything about it. That, that I, I don't know. I can't sleep at night because of that. So that, that's got me... Um, uh, upset. Um, there's lots of things about the addiction opiate crisis that I and I saw it happen. I predicted it. I was in the middle of it. I was complaining about it, and here it is. Right. And uh, still, people are barely listening. And then I'm trying to figure out um, the extreme narcissism that we're into right now, mm-hmm. and the behavior of crowds. Uh, right. the, the, the mob action. This is a good time for me to plug my Twitter handle, by the way. It's <laughs> at Paul underscore Ollinger. <laughs> but the behavioral crowds and and where in history there's been a narcissistic turn, there's been crowd action and what the outcome of that has been and where it's always, everything I can find so far, it, went, it doesn't go well. It goes bad. So when did, uh, clearly with background in social media, social media is playing a role in that. Mm-hmm. That's you, the town square now. Yeah. And and has that just thrown gasoline on the fire of American nar- or human narcissism? I, I don't know if it's made the narcissism work, but it's worse, but it's given them an environment to act out their mob behavior. What bothers me is the the insistence of the crowd is, it, it you know, through history, it's off with their head, right? Right. Or imprison them. Mm-hmm. The... Just short of that is take away their ability to make a living. Right. That's just short of imprisonment yes. or, or right. off with your head. So today, it, they have to be fired. They mm-hmm. must be fired. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a horrible thing. And, I, and I, I'm, I'm pissed at the companies that do the firing. Mm-hmm. Their first action should be, thank you for notifying us. First thing we're going to do is not fire this person. We're going to do an investigation. Right. But we're not going to fire just because a mob says fire. That's That's duplicitous it's mm-hmm. terrible so false positives are are a high cost of enforcement of these things but there's a lot of douchebags that have been taken down because it's finally time that social media is given I'm, voices to I'm people not saying that's not no no i'm not yeah. I'm, I'm just playing playing devil's advocate to say that there's social media has given voice to a lot of uh people who independently don't have as much power as they do together the flip side of that is that people get together and they if, can cause a lot of trouble right if, if there was some sort of uh, listen my radio partner is the woman that harvey weinstein did the plant thing on she's mm-hmm. she was the really oh really she's the second one to say me too i mean wow. she was really in, in it and, he just and likes I, ficus trees and i was this. and i was telling her i said look i just fear look if you look at the french revolution mm-hmm. the people that pulled out the guillotines first ended up on the guillotines right. it always eats itself yes so i kept urging her unless you have a process unless there's a procedural component it, it will it will start to eat itself because that that's the part I don't like. I don't mind that people take action and feel empowered to be able to express themselves, but it, the lack of any procedural or, or due process is where it goes off the rail. And the motivation is that social justice or or finding things that we agree with make us feel good that they they release 
brain chemicals to use my yeah again street, that's the that's the part language. I'm trying to I'm trying to really create a a, a narrative that people can understand about what it is they're doing and why it's really envy they're acting out mm-hmm. envy is the emotion that says I feel better when I tear you down right bring you down to my size not jealousy where you have something I want because jealousy can be a positive motivator right right you have a you know, whatever a, a plane I want to I'm gonna try to work hard to do that That's I'm right. sure jealous you have it but That's I'm gonna right. work hard to get it as opposed to I'm gonna put bomb that thing and we're gonna all attack it to make sure it goes away because it makes me feel bad well envy envy is an incredibly human emotion I mean we are our happiness uh, based on all the reading I've done and and uh, you've I'm sure you're familiar with is that happiness is not based on absolute circumstances, but on relative circumstances. Correct. Well, that, but it's a little. It's you're you're. I wouldn't state it that uh, uh, categorically. I think all we know is that people tend to be happier unless somebody has something more. <laughs> right. Tend to be. Right. Then we look around and we become less happy. The problem is the reason I wouldn't be too categorical with it. I'm, the happiness literature is very frustrating for me because I'm not even sure they understand what they're talking about. I'm not sure what they mean when they say happy. Mm. It's it's not being carefully dissected, and so I I, I at least want it broken into two categories. I would call it you, you I would call it hedonic happiness, mm-hmm. like pleasure, and eudaimonic happiness, which mm-hmm. is nourishing, sustaining, good life. What it is, a good, and those are two separate categories. And the good life, the eudaimonic happiness. Not really affected by what other people have. Right. Not really. But people are, you've said, and I'll, I'll use a quote from an old New York Times article, yeah. sometimes I think the patient I'm treating is the culture. Our culture. Oh, well, that's, that's, that's how I got involved. When, when I first got involved with radio 35 years ago, it was sex, drug, and rock and roll. And right. I was a 25-year-old resident or 26-year-old resident. I was thinking, oh, man, this radio is messing things up. We got all these STDs. <laughs> no, really. It's I was like, like we, got these, radio. we got all these STDs and yeah. the drug use and stuff. Yeah. It's, 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 it's been encouraged on the radio. Yeah. People forget what a force radio was back right. then. And I thought, if I just get in there and be a force you know, for the other direction, maybe yep. we can make a difference. So, yes, the culture is what I thought I was treating then. If you didn't have the telegraph, there wouldn't be chlamydia. <laughs> uh, no, but, but, but I... I don't mean to, to throw an old quote at you. I mean, I think it's it's very relevant because it seems to me you're talking about the same thing. Yeah, I am, and that our I am. culture our yeah. culture still emphasizes the hedonic over the eudaimonic. Eudaimonic, yeah, eudaimonic. 100%. Um, trying to brush up on my Stoics recently, but I'm still <laughs> having trouble with some of the Greek. Um, that we focus way too much on the hedonic yep. and we think that happiness is based on on chasing that dragon of the next car. And that's why I was picking on LA earlier because mm. you don't see it anywhere nearly as much as you do in New York and LA, right? I mean, it manifests... Yep in the Stepford wives in my neighborhood and so not my, sorry, I love my neighbors. I love all my neighbors, well, but no, you, it manifests in the suburbs in different ways. Well, but to get back to the millennials again, I, I think that's one of the things that their codes that they're cracking that is good. They're, they're not so interested in those kinds of things. They're searching for something that is not necessarily hedonic in I, nature. Uh, oh, I can't say that, but they're not not material in so much, material hedonistic. Mm-hmm. In, in other words, the, in their hand, they hold the, these phones that they hold in their hand, give them essentially everything. Right. And they don't have need cars because they have Uber, and they don't need places to live because they have mom and dad. And, right. they have, and, it, and they just, they aren't, measuring themselves against other each other in terms of what they have so much because everything kind of works and everything's good but are they measuring themselves based on experiences I yes mean, like, they are so so yes, they're saying they and, and talking about like one of the reasons why social media breaks down the distance between people the perceived distance between people which makes envy that much more profound Correct. because i see the trip that you yep. took you know, you're in Patagonia backpacking you know in your recyclable tom shoes mm-hmm. or whatever as a millennial and and 
and if say I don't have the same amount of resources or my student loans are you know six figures, I can't take that trip. You envy it, and it doesn't contribute to your happiness until you tear them down. Right, and then your happiness is enhanced again. <laughs> See how it works? Yeah, and that's not good. That is not a great paradigm. If I want to make a good living, should I go into the medical profession? No, no, no? oh no, no. no. Doctors were the rich parents in my when, when I yeah, was that's kid. over. That's done. I mean, surgeons, I guess, still make a lot of money. But yeah, that's it. Or highly specialized, you know, cash and carry type surgeries. So for can sure. you break down the economics, high, high level overview, of the economics of uh, becoming wait. a doctor today? Well, it's it's a million dollar education essentially mm-hmm. to get through medical school and everything. That, that's mm-hmm. your first expense, uh, and then your everything is price controlled by insurance companies and Medicare. Uh, if you're an internist like me, you're seeing older people mostly because that's who mm-hmm. gets sick. So it's mostly mm-hmm. Medicare. Medicare you won't let you see more than four people in an hour, uh, and they'll pay you about thirty six dollars per person. So that's one hundred and forty four dollars per hour. And it costs about a hundred dollars to run a practice an hour per hour. Yeah, forty four bucks isn't bad. Yeah, it's not bad. Not bad after <laughs> for a million dollar education and right? dedicating your life to stuff. And and you can make the the only way you can sort of amplify your income is by working excess hours right. in hospitals and things like excessive hours. So you when can, the when the office is closed, then you're then you're generating income that's essentially clear. So how do you feel about these um, uh, concierge medical services? It's great. Yeah, I, I go to one. Yeah. And and is that should anybody feel bad about having one or being a doctor? Who, I, I, who you shouldn't feel bad about having one, but if you I I I can understand feeling bad doing it as a physician because you you're excluding certain kinds of people and you're it, it's just it's just weird it's weird to be doing that to making a club out of your practice. It also you know again I like seeing really sick people and they're all Medicare Medicaid and those those populations right and I worry I would wonder how it would affect my skill set. How, what, so where do we go from here as a society? The, they must empower primary care. If they if they empowered primary care, what, is, what does that mean? Internists like me and family practitioners and pediatricians. If we could, if we could, for instance, just say in a in a court of law that uh, my defense is it was my judgment at the time to, to not order that test or not order that CAT scan. That was just mm-hmm. my opinion, mm-hmm. and it means something that could that wouldn't incur massive liability. It would all. Be, it would be game on. We'd, we'd save so much money. It'd be unbelievable. And what steps and would have to be taken to get there? Tort reform. You'd have to be massive, massive tort reform. Mm-hmm. And and you'd have to again start to actually pay internists to do the. I mean, do you do everything internal medicine? You take care of the family. You take care of the end of life stuff. You take care of the insurances. You take care of. You're doing everything, and you're the very very menial you know pay. And if they enhance that. And discouraged the, the consulting. You know, everything gets a consultant. Mm-hmm. They could save tons of money, tons and tons. So I'm self-employed, which means I get to buy my insurance on the exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, my choices in the state of Georgia are very limited and extraordinarily expensive. Fortunately, I can afford this. Um, how can we make insurance work better for for everyone? Could you do any kind of self-insurance? Type setup? Could you figure out a self insurance meaning set up a fund or something and find some way of ma- manage your well, own? I mean, I could, risk, I could, I, I, I could get the the uh, we go for basically catastrophic insurance, which is great. That's still right. very expensive. I mean, we're paying like uh, I mean, I think we probably have a silver plan. It's not totally catastrophic, but I mean, paying twenty four thousand dollars a year in premiums for a family of four. Wow, with six thousand dollars deductibles per person. Oof. I mean, it's it's it that. It's pretty catastrophic. Yeah, that's a lot of money. <laughs> um, 
Because I always thought, you know, insurance, if you're an individual purchaser, should be catastrophe. That's what it's for. It's, right. for, it's insurance, not right. entitlement. It's yeah. insurance. Right. And and be sure you have, again, you're self-funded on the, on the other side that you can cover whatever other expenses might be, you know, uh, you might come upon until you hit that catastrophic point. Yeah, it's even about seeing the doctor you want to see. That. I mean, you like basically these insurances are like, oh, we'll, we'll set you up with a dermatologist in three months. Where? Not sure. We'll just, we'll, we'll see you then. That's your plan now? Basically, Still? yeah. So kind of back to more personal stuff. And, and uh, we, we talked about managing your career over time. You still work, you're still raising kids. You want to pay for their education. Well, Dr. Drew, you're famous. So clearly you're fabulously wealthy. Must be. It must happen, <laughs> right? And, and I think it has some, I think at, for most of the 20th century, rich and famous went together, mm-hmm. right? And then it started fragmenting towards the end of the 20th century where you know all the different platforms started developing and thousands of television stations and so people were getting involved in projects where they're not making a lot of money right and and there wasn't a lot for them to do afterwards either and you know they now there's lots of different platforms lots of things to be done but they're relatively low reimbursement right so somebody who was i mean you must see all over la people who are making tons of money 20 years ago that can't pay struggling their rent today i think i think it's one of the reasons you're seeing a lot of movie actors on tv now well tv is a pretty good place to make a living right now i think it, at times well there's it, great projects on television i'm not yeah. saying they're paying millions and millions i of think dollars. if you in success maybe at renegotiation time but not at the beginning mm-hmm. and there's no more residuals and no there's not, no back end at netflix nothing, and all that very stuff. little of that stuff at this point in your career how do you how do you think about continuing to work over the next 5, 10, I 20 just, years. I just feel like if you're going to exist, you have to exist on multiple platforms and I'm just mm-hmm. out there trying different things. And everything is just a, a tiny, it's like multiple different hoses dripping into the bucket. Right, right. <laughs> there's, no, there's no spigot that's turned So on. there's no more like, hey, I, there's just very few people that I'm the guy that does this, you know, or I'm the, I'm, I'm the big, I make 30 million bucks a year anchoring there ABC are, Nightly News. There's stuff like that out there, but they're very rare. Now. Right. But there's also there's also people that are that, that have kind of taken the platform that have taken over their own platform and you know they write books or they have their own radio show that they produce and Yeah, but that's that's just you just mentioned two things that full of people. You you just mentioned two things that if you're lucky you could make a living. Radio is a dying medium. Mm-hmm. Books don't sell. I sold I, almost 1,500 copies of my well book. Done, well done. Well <laughs> done. Books are not a way to make anything. And, right. And radio is not a way to make anything mm-hmm. anymore. It, I mean, it's but it, but you could be one of many, many different things you did. Right. Um, Have so, you gotten into ownership of platforms? Are you part of the, the group behind management, any of this stuff? What do you mean? Well, like your podcast networks or anything like that? Yeah, or? I own some of the stuff. Yeah, yeah. we try to own. I mean, try. Do you, do you enjoy the business part? I mean- yeah. I mean, I don't, my wife manages a lot of it. I don't, I don't, you know, I, I try to stay focused on what I have to do. Right. Right. And, and, and my only goal is to make a difference. It's, that's my only goal to try to try to have a positive impact and have a little fun doing it and maybe, right. you know, do something interesting. And I, I, I'm so grateful, you know, gratitude is something I, I experience a lot of. Right. Because, you know, when I was getting up at five every morning and struggling to get it home at 10 every night, practicing medicine for 20 years. This all seems like a vacation, right. and, and and it's and it's pleasurable and it's interesting, and yeah. I get to interact with lots of interesting people and yeah. think about interesting ideas and try to find creative ways to make a difference. That, that's that's kind of something that I feel I feel pretty grateful for. So I think uh, you know money is the number one thing that uh, uh, married folks fight about. 
what is something that you're that that you think is a must-have that your wife thinks is an extravagance? I, I think again, I'm pretty austere, so yeah. it's you know I I don't have any must-haves. Yeah, I always feel like this is insane. I always feel like if I could afford like a a big barrister for making ca- coffee and cappuccinos, uh-huh. I would have made it. Like, like if I had, if <laughs> That's I were what you the, want, if I, if I, I don't want it. I just feel like if I could afford it, yeah. and it wouldn't bother me, like I wouldn't feel guilty or weird about it. That would be a good thing. A full time barrister that shows up. No, I don't have. To, I don't have somebody to run it. Just it oh. has to be sort of a professional like setup, a, like a crazy cappuccino, machine. like a crazy, like like something you'd see in an Italian oh, little yeah, coffee yeah. bar. Those things are expensive. I, they're ridiculous, and and they're it's like, like I would never do that. I would never right, do it. Right. And that's why I know if I ever were at a point where I could do that, right, it'd be like, wow, I now, <laughs> this is incredible. Do you not do it. That's because freedom. You would. That's fe- freedom. <laughs> do you not do it because you would feel guilty about it, or do you not do it because if you did it, you would lose the uh, moral high ground no. on your wife in negotiating No, finances. no, I just can't imagine doing it. I can't imagine doing it. That's why if I could do it, mm-hmm. it feels like, wow, that would be... A, if if Because think about it, all this stuff is very emotional, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, if I got to a place financially where I felt like mm-hmm. I could spend that money on myself and my right. family and not feel bad about it, how much would that be? I don't even know. I don't even know. But when I, I know if I could do it, I was there. Right. And I don't know if I, that's ever a possibility for Have me. Have you ever deprived yourself of something because you thought Constantly. you would Whatever lose it is. Your, no, it, <laughs> that you thought you would lose the moral high ground in negotiating uh, with, my wife. with your wife. Here's here's what I did with my wife. Mm-hmm. I, 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 did, I don't know if she knows I did this, but I, <laughs> I made a pretty interesting move. My wife did not understand this aspect of money that we were talking about in the very beginning of this conversation about building money. Mm-hmm. And I used to micro, micro, micromanage everything and do my own taxes. And yeah. and, and I slowly put everything in her hands, mm-hmm. including what I was doing in terms of investing and things. Really? Uh, and I didn't, like her, I didn't let her adjust anything on the investment side without us talking about it. But I, I put her sort of in charge of the f- flows in our household. And man, it changed her and her really? thoughts a lot. Because before, she was buying a lot of clothing <laughs> and, and didn't seem to understand why I was upset about it. And once I put her in charge of how things were moving around, she became like me. She became very much like-minded. Mm-hmm. And uh, so stuff we used to conflict about, which was her shoes and clothing primarily, right. which then back to my dad's stuff, of course, pushed every button. Um, and, and I remember like, God, he used to bother me buying breakfast, you know, at hotels and things. It was so goddamn expensive. It would drive me crazy. Right. Yeah. Uh, oh, the $40 pots of coffee. Yes. Oh my God. That does. But, but now. That's I, I would get up and go, where were you? I was in the lobby. Here's your coffee. Oh, I still did. Without, <laughs> almost without exception. But I will occasionally buy, here's how I know I'm better. Yeah. Will occasionally buy breakfast in the hotel and not have a feeling about it. I really, I won't feel bad about it. I won't do it all the time, right? Uh, but when I do it, I don't feel bad about it. When before, I was just devastated. I would, did you know my patience? I had to see to get. Oh my god, that's like a whole day's work right there, just to eat breakfast in the room. Like, oh my god, I don't do that anymore. I have my wife check out of hotels because I can't look at the bill. Uh, me too. I can't do hundred percent. Except, except I know she's being conscious and conscientious about this right. stuff now right and and i hear we talk about it and it's it's a it's a common we share a common language and a common intent now mm-hmm. that did not 
30, 25 years ago. That's interesting. Yeah. And so I, So how how long were you married when you before you did that? Probably 10, 15 years. Wow. And, and I just put her in charge. Now I don't even think of now she just she's in charge. Right. And I feel I trust her completely in what she's doing. And the management has been good. That's the made off strategy. Just give it all to her. <laughs> so are you stressed about the future? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And um particularly now. Because of what's going on in, in media overall, in your everything, just everything. I, I'm trying to finish the grad school payments for the kids. Right, uh, media is shrinking and you know becoming very difficult to get anything on television. Certainly, right. Um, and just trying to find ways to make a living is very challenging. Mm-hmm. It is very challenging, and I have this very strange feeling, generally, that I'm on like the 15 yard line of a long game, and I'm about to I, I could get in the end zone i don't know what that means getting right. in the end zone but i feel like i'm quarterbacking a team that's on the 15 yard line and i've got four downs and, and i don't know and the team is your family and- uh, it's yeah it's in my life and, and i i just would like to get in the end zone right i have no idea what the end zone holds or what that means mm-hmm. i just feel like there's something there that i need to get done and so that's driving me to in a weird way. And that's not a money thing, I don't think. I don't think. So it's more like your life purpose or yeah. having, having yeah. done what you you need to do to raise your kids? It, it, it just, it's more global than that. Done what I need to do. So you like I'm not done. I'm not finished. I need so, to finish. I don't know what I need to do to finish, but I'm not finished. Well, retirement fascinates me because I quit my job at 42 and I thought I'd be happy. Just I, 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 thought, I thought it was it was it was it was a horrible decision. Yeah. Um, so let's just say all the media stuff went away tomorrow. Yeah. Would you go back to seeing patients 40 hours a week? I, I, what would I you do? I fantasize about that. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'd do 40 hours. I, I might, I fantasize about a lot of things. I fantasize about going back. I always loved doing hospital work, like inpatient mm-hmm. medical hospital. I fantasize about that. I fantasize, I fantasize about taking a, a bigger job administratively in a, in a substance use setting because mm-hmm. I've got a lot of experience there that I could... I feel like I could make a real difference with that, but that would be a big job. Like I have to really dig in full time. Right. So I fantasize about those things. Yeah. And and you in in the reason you don't pursue those is because you still love the broadcasting part of it. Or I, again, this you is can where do more I, good with the I feel microphone. Like I feel like that's where the end zone is. Mm-hmm. I may be wrong, and and uh, the instinct is there's something more to be done creatively. Let's put it yeah. that way. Yeah. Yeah. And and I don't even know what that is yet. So who knows? I'm curious what you're finding with people and their different neuro- neuroses about money. Well, I uh, you know this it's is all family of origin. This stuff, is right? interview number four, right? So um, I, I'm fascinated about the way artists make a living. Um, so I've talked to a novelist. I'm going to talk to several comedians. I'm going to talk to a painter friend. How, uh, how do they? Because I think that's they scrap. Yeah. You know, I mean, a buddy of mine. This buddy of mine's a painter, and he's he's had lots of press attention. But you know, it's not like people once you're out of the media cycle, it's not like they're going like, "Hey, who's that painter guy?" Like, yeah. you know, like he's got to continually. It's like he's a consultant renewing contracts, and he's got to go out there and find you know new people to to be interested in his work, and mm. it's great stuff. But it's 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 nonstop. Those guys. I've got another visual artist who's a good friend, and it's nonstop hustle. A, a lot of Almost every endeavor is that that piece, that that working hard. Let's put it under that rubric, you know. But it's also 
a feature of it is marketing yourself or I don't know. It's, I think you have to put a stake in the ground as what you stand for and, and try, I mean, I'm trying to create a product here and, yeah. you know, ask myself what value can I provide the listener reader? And hopefully part of that is sharing some of the experiences I had and using those experiences to open up um, conversations with people like you to say, well, you, you come from things from a different point of view and your life looks amazing from the outside. What's really going on? And I, I think that'll help people by hearing things because people get so tripped up by money in their lives, whether they have none or they have a ton. And that's was the surprising part to me. Like I, I, I said as a kid, I want to make money because I, I don't want to stress about money. And just saying that out loud is hilarious right, to me. Is, is, you end up creating lots of stress with lots of money. Totally. Totally. Do you have any sense, when I talk about freedom, do you understand that concept of being free financially? Well, I, I think f- freedom is, 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 is a ratio of how much you need and how much you have or how much you have coming in. Yeah. Is that what you mean by it? I don't know. It's an emotional feeling. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not. It's it's a it's the barrister. It's the, it's the coffee maker. But I don't. I'm you, not you sure mean, what it means. But, but I don't know that there is freedom. I mean, because that's who you are, and you can't you can't not be who you are. You can maybe. But check I know and that see, I like, felt, why am I this way? But I know I have felt better and relief along the way. I really have. Because you've stopped beating yourself up about things, or you stopped wanting things that no, that I, make I'm you not. Happy? I'm not. I'm not somebody that wants a lot of things or buys a lot of things. I'm not right. at all that way. Um, it, it's more about feeling secure. That that let's. I think it's something in this order that there's sufficient capital that would throw off sufficient mm-hmm. income. Sure, that I could do what I wanted to do. Right, and could live. Sort of the way I already I live presently, but that's part of knowing what's going to make you happy f- from an expense standpoint. Yeah, and being on the same page with your partner. Yes, about I, what you believe you both want to consume and what you want to provide. Well, for your so I family. think we're then lucky that way because I think we're in the same. That's same a thing. big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah, because I mean, there's money is the most relative thing in the world. And there, and nobody has the same amount of money, right? There's always somebody with more money than you. Therefore, by definition, a marriage is never 100% equal partnership mm. when it comes to money. Right. And and money brings up issues of values and background and um, just priorities. And every time the Amex bill comes, that can create, that can open the door for, you know, positive or, or negative things to come out. There was a time when we were we were having trouble with that. I'm not saying it does in my house. I'm remembering we had, I'm just I, saying, when you said the Amex saying, bill, I got I had to. It was like yeah, I remember <laughs> when the Amex bill was really a source of. But that's kind of a beautiful thing though that you you said about your wife because by by actually bringing her into it, you you help create I, a partnership. I think so, and it also relieved me of some of my neurosis too. I just don't even I just let her manage that and trust it. Well, I think there's a whole episode about money and marriage that uh, could we'll have happen. to get to. Yeah, you get to. Ultimately, I would just say, you know, money is a psychological. It, it's really about. It's not about the money. It's about the meaning of the money, and it's about the symbolism of the money. When people fight about it, when people have issues on it, and so much of it is built up in our family of origin, right? And then the social historical context in which we see all these things and live all these things, and then, you know, how we're able to um, reconcile it with our general. Um, principles about meaning of living and purpose of living you know leading a good life it's hard yeah it is not easy and people don't think about it very much about how to live a good life 
I will tell you, you when you know somebody's leading a good life because they'll talk about being grateful. They'll talk about gratitude. And and, and um, so if you hear somebody saying, I'm so grateful, I'm so grateful for what I do, or whatever, that, that's somebody who usually is leading a good life. And that life usually includes making a difference for other people, almost always. And it, it may have, uh, I, in my own case, the thing that, that, that is sort of the icing on the cake is I have a sort of a creative piece that I never prepared for. I didn't know that was going to be part of my life. It's only been the last four or five years that I've been kind of really looking at it. Before that, it was always just an exploration that people mm-hmm. would present to me. And I go, okay, I'll explore that. Now I'm thinking more in terms of what can I create to make a difference. And that's that's pretty satisfying. If you had $50 million, would you buy that espresso machine? I don't think you would. I think I would. Oh, really? I think I might. That's the headline. I think I might. Fifty million dollars gets Doctor Drew because then you'd go why not? Machine. You'd go why? Why would you? Because you'd still be afraid. Because you'd no, still have to be so, some instincts. That's 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 where I'm different. I I, yeah. I start to have I change at different stages. Okay, and I think that I think I could pretty easily buy an espresso machine at that All point. All right, I hope you get that espresso. Thank machine. you, thank you. That'd be crazy. Thanks very much for doing this. Right. I appreciate it. Anytime. So that was my chat with Doctor Drew Pinsky. That dude knows a lot about a lot of stuff, including addiction, infectious diseases, and Ulysses S. Grant. So hope you enjoyed it. Uh, He was very generous to be one of the first guests on this podcast, so I greatly appreciate it. Thanks, Dr. Drew. Coming up, we've got other great guests that I know you'll want to hear. Ed Roland, the lead singer of Collective Soul. Tony Duff, author of the New York Times bestselling list, The Buy Side. We had a great conversation about his Wall Street career and how it sort of hit the skids when he started... uh, doing a little thing called cocaine. Great, funny interview and uh, hopeful hopeful one as well. What am I plugging? Oh, hey, listen, if you like what we're doing here, and I hope you do, we're going to figure out what it is, by the way. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep just exploring. That's what this is about, exploring how money changes our lives, makes it better, or steers us off track. We're, we're going to find it. If you like it, I sure would appreciate you going to iTunes and both subscribing and rating the podcast with as many stars as you can stomach. Um, If you have to give me one or two out of empathy, well, darn it, I'll take it. Um, Tell your friends about it. Oh, follow it on Spotify, but also tell your friends about it. You can email it. You could email it. You can't put a disc in the mail because these aren't on DVD. I mean, you could burn a DVD and then send it out like an old AOL disc if you wanted to. But it'd probably be a far more efficient and you could reach a lot more people if you emailed it or tweeted uh, or, uh, you know, texted. And if you do tweet, be sure to tag me at Paul underscore Ollinger. Ollinger is O-L-L-I-N-G-E-R. Um, that is my handle on both Twitter, Paul underscore Ollinger, and on Instagram, a subsidiary of Facebook Incorporated, my um, my alma mater. You can find me on Facebook at slash Paul Ollinger and on LinkedIn at uh, just search Paul Ollinger if you want. I mean, I don't, you know, how many, how much time do you have to really go and do that? Do you have all day? Probably not. Hey, importantly, if you want to see me do stand-up comedy, and I hope you do, I'll be headlining Caroline's on Broadway in New York City on March 13th. That's the Caroline's on Broadway. I'm really excited about it. It's my first time headlining there. I'd love to see you there. Uh, Caroline's on Broadway will Go to their website. You'll find tickets. Also, I'll be uh, performing all over the Southeast many times at the Best of Atlanta show at the Laughing Skull Lounge on February 16th, 22nd, 28th, and March 10th. I appreciate your day. 
Oh, man, I just messed that up. I appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. I hope you have a wonderful evening. Goodbye.